It has the power to unite people in a way that little else does. You're supposed to say, you know, we're important. And you're yeah. supposed to say, it's all going to be all right. At a 1.7 grade point average. I hope none of you can relate. <laughs> Your unique, simplifying, minimizing, growth, junkie journey. And I have to tell you, I am filled with gratitude. So much gratitude. Always look for the people who are helping, she'd tell us. You'll always find somebody who's trying to help. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. My name is Jordan, and welcome to Our Unique Life. Hey, Jordan here, and welcome back. Before we get started on another great story, there's something I want you to listen to. Sonder. You are the main character. The protagonist, the star at the center of your own unfolding story. You're surrounded by your supporting cast, friends and family hanging in your immediate orbit. Scattered a little further out, a network of acquaintances who drift in and out of contact over the years. But there in the background, faint and out of focus, are the extras. The random passers-by, each living a life as vivid and complex as your own. They carry on invisibly around you, bearing the accumulated weight of their own ambitions. Friends. Routines. Mistakes. Worries. Triumphs and inherited craziness. When your life moves on to the next scene, there's flickers in place. Wrapped in a cloud of backstory and inside jokes and characters strung together with countless other stories that you'll never be able to see. That you'll never know exists. In which you might appear only once. As an extra sipping coffee in the background. As a blur of traffic passing on the highway. As a lighted window at dusk. I really wanted to play this video clip for you guys because I feel like it perfectly illustrates what I'm trying to aim for. Sonder. Who would have thought that there's a single word that could describe it? And that's the goal of this podcast is to get to know those flashes on the highway that are passing you by, that light in the window. And I think that's really inspiring.
We had a little bit of a longer intro than usual, but I hope it was somewhat enlightening or fun to listen to. Today's story is a really great one, Um, just like all the others, but they're all different, and that's what's fun and exciting about all of our lives. My guest today was a combat marine who saw multiple tours and had to deal with multiple hardships and... We talk about everything from his entrance to the Marine Corps and the shock and growth that happened there to his combat deployments and he goes into some details. And then we finish off by talking about his life post Marine Corps and how he had to create a new outlet for himself in order to accept his past and to grow. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode of Our Unique Life. Every day I go out, every day I wake up, I'm like, this is it, I'm fucking dead today. I just don't want to go out, like, looking like a bitch or having my friends die in front of me because I fucked up. My name's Tyler Bell. I'm 30 years old from Cincinnati, Ohio. I live in Louisville with my girlfriend, and we have two rabbits, and I'm a writer. A uh, former reporter, and I own and operate the podcast West Side Fairy Tales, which is a once-a-month horror, dark and anth- horror and dark fiction anthology podcast, which is available online. So, what was your childhood like? Would you say it's pretty pretty normal childhood with mom and dad? Any siblings? Uh, yeah, I got a, a sister and a brother. My childhood was so. Uh, banal middle America it, it's almost like you know it, there's there's no story I can tell about my childhood that like everybody else doesn't kind of have from that area I uh, I grew up Catholic in Cincinnati Ohio which is just like fucking I don't know that's like describing paper as white it's Catholic town primarily uh, church on every corner type thing so you just grow up Catholic you don't really have a fucking you don't have a choice in the matter all right, so you had a you had a pretty normal kind of bland as you described childhood, and you went to high school. Were you a popular kid, nerdy kid? Skated? Oh fuck no! I was a uh, I was a black clothes wearing degenerate that listened to fucking death metal and metal and watched fucking anime and hung out at a corner of our we i went to uh, oak hills high school which if anyone on your program listens to it's the second biggest high school in the uh, cincinnati metropolitan area i think my graduating class is somewhere around a thousand kids and like uh yeah you're just you're a number (laughs) in that fucking facility but it was me and my other friends in the the tiny black corner of the uh the lunchroom did you have the fedora and eyeliner to go along with it? Oh, Jesus Christ, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was a different table. Uh, it's like, Oak Hills is so big that they can accommodate every every weird niche. So, you know, like, you know, you don't have just, like, your goth kids. You got, like, I was just at the, like, metalheads and, like, dropkicks table. Like, so everyone I hung out with, we kind of just wore dark clothes because half of us were going to grow up to be auto mechanics and you didn't want to wear colored clothes if you're going to go to the, the fucking tech shop after school to go get your 
uh, vocational degree and then ruin them. And then the rest of us were wearing black because if you're poor and you just buy black clothes, everything always matches. And uh, then I guess like the tiny little bit were like, I'm actually fucking very dark inside. I just had no fashion sense. So the the all black, you say no lack of fashion sense. I'm guessing you probably had the typical uh, teenage rebellion, I hate authority stage or no? Yeah, sort of. Uh I, I didn't even have that stage. I, I still, I still live it. Fucking, <laughs> I've never not had a problem with authority. Uh, and, and it's not like you know, I don't like people telling me what to do. It's just like I don't like dumb people being in charge of stuff, or being told to do something and, and I don't get explained why. And it's weird that that actually wasn't a huge thing when I was in the Marines because it tends to be so obvious what you need to do or your leadership is competent enough to not get you killed that when you are kind of rebellious to authority, it's usually like a life-saving maneuver. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That fucking, that lieutenant's retarded and he'll get everybody killed because he's a fucking idiot. Don't do anything he says. Don't ever do anything he says. And then you don't. And then when he takes you on a 21 mile accidental hike through enemy territory you survive because you don't trust anything he does rebellion against authority man sometimes it's a life-saving maneuver that's right that's right so where did the bridge between this all black wearing uh kind of grungy style to the marine corps how were you just right out of high school did you join yeah i uh, i graduated and I, I was in the marine corps Two months after graduation, uh, I graduated in early June, and then I was in boot camp uh, June twenty fourth, two thousand five. I I feel like last year I was no longer in high school. I was not really like uh, super, you know, wearing dark clothes and shit. I kind of got gung ho when I decided to join the Marines. So from like I, I actually enlisted when I was 17. Like the day I turned 17, I went down and signed the papers and I spent the entire year, basically the school year, because it's from September until June, uh, in the delayed entry program. And I, I fucking shaved my head and I had beanies and I was fucking quoting full metal jacket in the, the hallways and stuff. It was real hardcore. And I mean, uh, that was, that was 2004. So, you know, we were a year really into the Iraq war war. Uh, you know, I was, a junior in high school in Operation Phantom Fury, which not a lot of people know about anymore, but that was the uh, the taking of Fallujah was going on. And it was like, this is the worst combat America has seen since Vietnam. And I was like, fuck it, dude. I want to do that death metal ass shit. I want to go fucking carry guns and drop bodies and shit. And uh, I don't know. It was strange. I, like, I really don't understand who I was <laughs> when I was 17. Like, uh, now that I'm getting older and older and older, I kind of understand uh people who are like i don't get teenagers because like now i'm like i was a fucking teenager obviously for you know years and now i look back and i'm like what that kid was a fucking idiot (laughs) i could barely run like i'm in great shape compared to what i was now but uh when i went to boot camp i dropped down from like 195 pounds or so to a buck 60 Wow. And like when I got out, I was a fucking, I was a whip, dude. I'm running around doing pull-ups and shit. It's intense. I mean, Marine Corps boot camp was like no shit at the, that point too, because you know we were in the middle of a war. So they're like, we're gonna get you through, but we're gonna fuck you up because it's like a no child left behind policy on new Marines. Like <laughs> you're gonna graduate. Right, right. 
So do you remember the first day when you arrived at boot camp? That's I always love hearing those stories. It was very impactful for me, kind of that wake-up call. Do you remember in detail the day that you arrived at boot camp? I, yes and no. Like, you'll never forget it, but it's so chaotic. And I don't know if you know about Marine Corps boot camp, but it's the same. Every single person who's gone to Marine Corps boot camp has gone through the same first fucking day. You know, it's I was in a bus, right? They flew us into, I can't remember where in South Carolina because I was kind of out of it anyway. Because we fly in, you start boot camp at like 3 or 4 in the morning. So we fly into a airport of some sort in South Carolina, right? And then from there, it's like a two and a half, three hour bus trip on to Paris Island. And Paris Island is an island technically, uh, but really what it is, is it's a, an island in a string of archipelagos and like lagoons and swamps and shit all on the coast of South Carolina. And so we, we were driving, and it's, you know, basic country. If you've ever been to South Carolina or anywhere in the American South, it's kind of flat and wet and brown and green. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of just shitty on the side of the road. It's a place that, you, like, your, your primate brain is like, oh, if we go in there, we're going to die. Like, our ancestors have known that for 100,000 years, <laughs> you go into an area like that, that's fucking snakes, alligators, and infection, and you die. And so you just drive into that. And we're all trying to stay awake, and like while we're on the plane and stuff, everyone's talking shit, and like, yeah, man, I watched this video online, and I saw this, and my recruiter said this, and like, yeah, man, I'm gonna get in there, I'm gonna be the first guy that like no one yells at, and I'm gonna be this dude, I'm gonna be that badass, and then like the first two hours, everyone kind of calms down, and then for the last hour, you're just driving through these wetlands, and it's just bridges and dark. And, like, the moon was out, so it's, like, just kind of, like, this glittering darkness all around you with the, with the moonlight, like, reflecting off the water and bridges in silence. And we're like, fuck. And then you get into the gates, and there's no one on the on the bus with us. I think we had, like, a chaperone, quote-unquote, but he wasn't, like, a drill instructor or anything. He was just, like, a guy that made sure that we all got there and no one hopped off the bus because that happened, so they tell us not to do it. They're like, if you don't think you can hack it, ride all the way. Don't try to jump out the windows on the bus going 55 miles an hour because you will not survive the impact onto the blacktop and we might not know where you are. So damn, we get there, right? And you're driving through and it's like, here's the gates. And they are like the gates to Jurassic fucking Park. It's like Paris Island. This is where Marines are made or something along those lines. And you're going through and you can see all the shit from the videos you've seen. And I don't know if you've ever watched Full Metal Jacket, but it's a uh, movie from the 19... 19- 70s about going to boot camp in uh during the vietnam war and it is the most accurate depiction of boot camp still to this day minus a few changes because of like the years have gone by but every kid that's going to go to boot camp has probably seen that uh at least marine corps boot camp and you get on base and it's the fucking same they have not changed anything so you're seeing things like oh god this is real there's places from a movie right there outside of this bus and then it's completely silent and it's just the bus driving on base and then you get to the uh the yellow footprints and the yellow footprints are the thing ask any marine for the rest of your life hey when did you step on the footprints and he'll be like 4 a.m goddamn 
June 24th, 2005. It was the worst day of my life. <laughs> and, like, also the proudest that they get, like, really into it. So the yellow footprints are literally to help you learn how to stand in formation, which is, you know, a four by X. So four people in the front by however many going all the way back as evenly as you can get it. And they... So you pull up next to the footprints, and they're about actually to the same dimensions as the bus you're on, and they are literally, like, painted yellow footprints on the ground outside of the bus. And you're like, fuck, here it comes. And I swear to God, all hell broke loose like a fucking firecracker went off. The bus starts rocking side to side, and you hear screaming, and suddenly there's a drill instructor on the bus, and he came in through, like, the back exit door. All right, get off the bus. Blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like instantly panicked. People are screaming, yes, sir, or I, sir, no, sir. You're running off the bus. It's almost chaos. You're getting on the lines, and then these dudes, like these fucking Marine Corps drill instructors have to go through physical training that's like above and beyond the physical requirements for basically every single job in the United States Marine Corps, like up to and including fucking like Marine Special Operations Command. These dudes are built like fucking gorillas the smallest one of them's got arms the size of your fucking leg and they're shaking a bus full of kids it's just two guys on one on each side of the bus pushing it back and forth like they're not even that big of dudes compared to like where i was once i got out of the marines but these guys are fucking rocking this thing you're like fucking falling off like into the aisles and shit and, and then from there you get on the, the the footprints and you're like fuck i'm in it i am in it now this is this is some shit and then it's just chaos for the next week. Like, you get from the footprints, you go in, uh, you get yelled at, you sign some stuff, you get your phone call to your parents. It's like a prison phone call. The drill instructors are looking at you, and they're like, read what's on the wall. And there's, like, little things taped above the wall. And these are, like, prison cell phones if you've ever been to a jail. It's just a, a phone, on a corded phone, and, like, a tiny little cubicle thing on the wall. And, and you look, and you read the shit that's on the wall, and it's like, Hello, mom or dad. I have arrived safely at Paris Island. I am now in the like com- under the command of whoever. If you need to call anybody because of an emergency, this is the number. Shit like that. Okay, goodbye. And like my mom's trying to be like, I love you. I love you. I love you. Like click. <laughs> you fucking go run. You get your head shaved, which is the most painful thing on earth. I don't know if they do that in the navy, but in the marines, these barbers are just like civilian barbers. They work for the for the government. But man, they fucking shave your head in three seconds. And I'm talking, they dig you, dude. And then you're bald. Maybe you have like a few unshaved patches. You look like an idiot because your head's not tanned. And so everyone's bedraggled. You get your civilian clothes ripped off of you. And then you're walking like naked. Then you get your, your issue and you put your issue on, which is like pants and a blouse. You know, all your basic. It looks like a Marine Corps uniform. They just spend basically the next eight weeks solid just fucking you up every day like real bad to the point where you think things are getting easier but you're actually just growing as a marine and a person so quickly and physically adapting to the environment that you're becoming fucking too hard for them to break anymore and you're not fucking up which is like weird to think about like when you're there you're like oh man they're taking it easiest on easy on us today and like no i just haven't fucking moved my neck and like two and a half weeks and uh then you graduate and it's like it was all a fucking dream right and you think you're the baddest motherfucker on earth because now you're a united states marine 
But in reality, you aren't shit. <laughs> You've you think about it in your mind because you're thinking as a civilian, like, oh, I've achieved what every Marine's achieved. Like, I'm one of those guys. And it's like, yeah, but that's bullshit. That's like entry level. Now you have to achieve what a lot of Marines haven't achieved, which is like where I went. That shit was easy compared to School of Infantry. And School of Infantry is like a 12 to 20 mile hike. They don't actually tell you how long the last one is, but you got to do four hikes, a three mile, a five mile, a 10 mile. And then the last one, which some people have said it's 20 miles, but I think it was actually like 25 kilometers, which is about 12 and a half. And you do that shit with a fucking no shit, full on flak jacket, your M16, your issued M16 for boot camp. And I was in weapons platoon. So on top of that, because I was a machine gunner, I had to carry an M240 and like other pieces of the M240 squad setup. So I had an, an A bag, which is the bag that carries the spare barrel and a bunch of cleaning parts and stuff that weighs like six, seven pounds. And I also had the tripod attached to me because the other guys in my fucking squad were not strong. So I was just like, dude, just attach these to my pack and I'll fucking carry them. I don't give a shit. And we'll just pass the gun back and forth. But things fell apart on that hike so badly. I ended up carrying that 240 plus another 240 for the last like, three miles of the hike or no, no, it was probably actually like two and a half. Cause basically we got back to base, right? Cause you hike, you hike out of the base through just trails. You just walk through darkness outside of the base through all these like trails through the woods that lead to different ranges and you can't see anything. So it's really just like a straight four, five, six hours, roughly. You don't know of walking through the middle of the night, constantly just looking at the back of the head of the person in front of you and like occasionally talking with each other and stuff, but just like sweating and just trying not to like fall out. And it's, it's weird because there's some guys that can't handle it at all. And like, they just fall out and now they're not, they were never in the infantry and it, it like shaves off 10, 15% of the people on the first three hikes. But like, once you can make it like guys, I know like me and I talked to some other, my friends, like your brain just turns off. And your body becomes this like otherworldly thing that your consciousness is only like sort of attached to. And you just suffer from a distance like you're floating over yourself until you finally finish and cool back down. And then everything hurts again. And I was tired. (laughs) When I finished, I sat down and like I couldn't stand back up because the, the my entire core, like the top of my thighs through inside to the bones of my hips was solid like concrete. And, like, I couldn't stand up because it just froze on me once I finished. That was bad. And then you had to walk up three flights of the stairs to put all your heavy-ass shit away because um. we lived on the top floor because we were machine guns. But, uh, yeah, and that was SOI, and that wasn't as hard as three fucking combat deployments in Iraq, which is a whole nother – that's, like, three steps up. <laughs> it just <laughs> got harder and harder and harder. Every every day you're in the Marines, you find a new – you have to find a new challenge – or a new challenge finds you, and you just got to beat that motherfucker's brains in. And because if you don't, then it's going to get you. And that's what, you know, that deployed and deployed and deployed. And I finally got out, and I was just a, a vicious fucking animal of a human being. Like, I spent three years in the grunts, because it basically took me about a year, uh, well, nine months, from boot camp starting 
to all the way through SOI to get into my unit, which was 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. And that was a nightmare of a day because they make it harder on you than anything else you've gone through. And then uh, 2-8 was a little notorious in uh, <laughs> Camp Lejeune for being a bunch of drunken uh, assholes. Our, our unofficial motto, especially in the weapons platoon, was uh, you can do whatever the fuck you want as long as you're better at your job than everybody else. And we kind of like live that motto to the fullest. So dudes would be drinking, drunk during the day, fucking puking on runs, but they'd never fall out of runs. Our, like, scores on ranges were higher than, like, anyone else in our regiments. And, like, we never fucked up in the field. So, like, you know, we'd go on a field exercise, and you're like, dude, two eights, two eight golf company showed out. And that was my company. Two eight golf is, like, the fucking baddest dudes on earth. Like, we're beating out Echo, Fox, everyone else. So we're like, yeah, we, we get to do whatever we want. Our uh, senior enlisted and officers did not agree with that. And a lot of people <laughs> got in trouble, got NJP'd almost constantly. But man, that, that was, that was its own thing. I mean, I can, I can explain the fleet Marine Corps in one story, if you don't mind. To basically describe the fleet Marine Corps in a, <laughs> in a single, in a single story, the day I got to the fleet Marine Corps, uh, for real was actually March 10th, but the time I got to my barracks and I actually met my roommates and I, I had moved in fully and I was a full part of 2nd Battalion 8th Marines Golf Company was March 17th after the last seven days of a 10-day field up and everybody was strung out, uh, pissed. It's a bunch of Lance Corporals and PFCs uh, and it was Friday because that's when we got off and it was basically like the drinking lantern was lit. And I had to go do two or three minutes of paperwork, and then I get dropped off in a truck with my shit in front of the barracks, and I go and I meet my roommate, my roommate, Anthony Hedge, who I'm still best friends with to this day. Uh, he was a senior Lance Corporal to me, so he actually outranked me. He is drunk, like red-eyed, blackout drunk, <laughs> screaming at his then-girlfriend, who actually had the mother of his first child, Julianne, screaming at her on an old-school clamshell flip phone and throwing Bud Light, empty Bud Light beer bottles at the wall of the barracks. These are cinder block walls because Marines live in them, so you, you can't make any destructible materials. So hard that, to this day, there's still glass bits embedded in them. Flinging them. You fucking bitch! I can't believe you left me like that! Blah, 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 blah. Drunk and screaming while outside I had to pass through like just a bunch of dudes that are like 10 out of 10 physiques, strongest, like biggest motherfuckers on earth, blotto drunk being like, hey, are you the new boot? I'm like, yeah, it's skinny as shit. A buck 65 soaking wet. My fit camis are filthy because I basically went on my last op in, uh, school of infantry and then i came straight here so i haven't even like really been able to wash my camouflage for like two weeks because of all this transitioning stuff i've been doing <laughs> and this is the first guy i meet and he becomes one of my best friends and he's just an absolute reprobate <laughs> and uh he was a mortarman and that is the fleet marine corps like to a t if you're an infantryman it's just a drunken violent chaos for three and a half years and we went to war, and we were fucking good at it. Uh, my first deployment, and a lot of people say uh, 
you don't like talking about Iraq and stuff. I know a lot of guys who don't bring it up. I know a lot of guys who avoid talking to us anymore just because, like, talking to the boys, you know, the infantry guys you were with, is, like, painful because it brings up fucked up memories. You know, it's, like, stuff you don't want to really go back to. So you you avoid it like crazy. And I was that way for years after I got out. Uh, you know, it seems like I went through so much, but, you know, I really got out of the Marine Corps when I was 22. I went in when I was – or when I was 21 – uh, and I went in when I was 17 and I got out and I felt like a 35 year old man. I actually feel younger now, like way down the line just because like uh, I've become human again after a while. But talking about those experiences is the most important thing, I think. Uh, if there's any one thing I can tell vets that have been through shit or anyone really that's been through shit. I mean, if you were sexually assaulted or you were like badly beaten or you lost a leg in like an, a massive accident. If you have PTSD, if you have something that's fucking laying on your chest and fucking you up, talk about it. It's going to hurt so bad. The first few conversations you have, it's going to be scary. It's going to be something that you don't want to do. You'll avoid doing it more than you'll avoid having the same thing happen to you again, but you got to talk about it and it'll, it'll make you human again. Like my first deployment was nuts. We got mortared constantly. Um, just to put it in perspective, it was outside of Fallujah in a place called Al Sakalawea, which no one's ever heard of. And even fewer people can spell, but this place was a farming village town of like i don't know maybe two or three thousand people it might have been more i don't really know what the population estimates was but the, the, the village itself was very small and then around it was farms and farmland which i spent a sizable amount of my time walking through and uh for the first four months of the deployment we were on a bridge an actual highway overpass in iraq iraq has highways like any country in the world and they have overpasses so this is the, the equivalent of I-90 or I-75 or, you know, I-47, and it's a four-lane highway with a giant empty median in the desert, but it's the, the I guess you would call it low desert, you know? So there's there's palm trees and shit because we were right next to the Euphrates, actually, and like an offshoot of the Euphrates. That's why there was a town there because there was enough water to farm. And so there's like scrub grass, but it's mostly brown, brown on brown on brown on brown, different shades of it, dark, light, everything in between. And uh, we would sit there and we would look up one way and up down the other way, down MSR Mobile, which ran right through the uh, middle of Al-Ambar province, which is where we were. It's the uh, state, basically, in Iraq where we, we lived and where actually most of the fighting and where, where most of the Marines were stationed during that conflict. And we would look up about a mile and a half, two miles one way and about three quarters of a mile the other way and just try to make sure no one put IEDs down on the road. And we would do that every day. Sun up to sundown, sundown to sun up, noon to noon, on a weird rotating 12 on, 6 off, 6 on, 12 off schedule that was like confusing to us and that we kept up so that we could keep the people that were trying to fuck us up from learning our uh, rotation. So, you know, we were all sleep deprived and crazy and it was just a weird thing. And we got mortared and stuff. I mean, like, you know, if you don't know what a mortar is, people at home. It's a bomb that you shoot out of a tube and it goes straight up in the air and it comes straight back down at a weird, long parabolic angle. 
and uh, there's nothing you can do <laughs> except for be not near it when it goes off or hope that you're on the other side of the world's strongest wall. And they would walk these in on us. So basically you would hear somewhere in the distance and you would be like, fuck, it's a mortar. And it would go boom. And then like uh, an explosive, like a cloud of dust from the explosion, which is actually full of shards of metal and stuff that are flying further than the cloud. And this thing is the size of a goddamn football field would blow up two, three hundred yards away from us. And then you'd hear the next two as they're dropping the next one. And they would actually what they do is because they they're terrible at aiming these things. They're not as good as our mortarmen. It takes a lot of math and a lot of training to get, you know, all the geometry of these things. Right. So what they would do is they would kind of line it up and they would aim way too close and they bracket towards us. We call it walking because they wouldn't do an actual bracket, which is too close, too far, too close, right on. They would go too close, too close, on, too far, and hope that it somewhere in that four-shot thing. usually do about four or five shots because then they have to run because our anti-mortar systems would shoot fucking giant-ass artillery rounds from Al-Habania, which is a couple miles away through the sky directly at where they were and blowing the shit up so they knew exactly how many rounds they could fire off so they stop at a truck they go tink 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 and where we are you see boom wha-bam and once the second one hits you're like okay this is literally a dice roll for my life is this thing gonna land on my lap or close enough to fucking kill me and all my friends or is it gonna miss us and probably hit the town and kill a bunch of Iraqis and every time it missed us and I think it happened like three or four times. And like, dude, once is enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you heard this, you know, the sound of the mortar being shot, you said that you just had to pray it wouldn't be in your lap. But what was what would go through your mind when you heard that? Like, are you just like staring at the sky and like, or are you like trying to figure out where you can go inside? You know, would you like go in buildings or stay out in the open? Or, like, I well, can't there was even- nowhere... There was nowhere for us to go. Um, we got mortared way more than that while I was in the building that we lived in. Sorry, our main base that I was on was about uh, three quarters, half a mile away from the the uh, overpass that we stayed on. And that base was upfitted like a motherfucker. It was just full of sandbags in the windows. And they had what they call mortar plating, which is basically like uh, aircraft loading skids made out of like three inch metal plates on the roof so that any mortars that hit would explode and blow out sideways instead of going into the building. Uh, so you were relatively safe in there and we lived on the third floor and I don't think anybody lived on the fourth floor just in case it got blown up, but maybe they did. And if they did, they were doing some fucking trouble if that thing hit us, but, uh, they never hit us in there. Although one or two, I think landed in the yard outside, but that's a big empty space for helicopters to land in. So, uh, it didn't hurt anybody. But uh, when we were out there on the overpass, it was just wooden buildings and sandbags. And I mean, like plywood temporary structures that we put up. So if they hit us, that's it. The, the destructive power of a mortar is enough to really just wreck your shit if it hits anywhere near you. And, and that's what they're, they're made for is area denial. So if it lands, it basically kills everything in a, a 50 meter air, like radius. And then uh, for 75, 100 meters outside of that is an injury radius. So like if you're in the 50 meters, you're done. Unless you dug 
like good old fashioned six feet uh, anti mortar uh, trenches like they had back in you know World War One and stuff. And if it gets in the trench, obviously everybody dies. But you just have to hope it hits outside and blows right over the top of you. And even if it does, you've still got to worry about overpressure, downfalling shrapnel. So basically, the the actual pressure of this thing doesn't give a shit about where you are it goes and flows down so it it just basically takes all of the air and crushes it outward and it pushes it down too and that can give you a concussion like uh, the same way flashbangs work Mm. which is part of the actual initial shrapnel explosion so that goes sideways and then the overpressure is like a dome that goes through everything and that can really screw you up too if you're close enough and then after that there's all the shit that flew up is going to come down in a rain, which can also hurt you, but it's way, way less likely. Uh, I actually blew up a uh, semi-truck offside, off the side of our bridge on my deployment, and we got rained with tiny flecks of hot shrapnel for about I don't know, like 20 or 30 seconds after it went off, just because so much shit was coming down. And they dropped a JDAM on this thing. It's like a 300-pound laser-guided bomb. But uh, anyway. Wow. Sorry. So, so after like the first mortar strike, or I guess any of the mortar strikes, what's going through your mind when you're trying to, you know, go to sleep that night or you're on watch or whatever? I don't know what they call it, watch the Marines, but, um, is there ever that point where you just like, kind of, kind of sat there and said to yourself, I don't know if I just fucked up royally, or is it just kind of, you're just in the mindset of being with your, you know, fellow fellow men uh no it's like it's even weirder than that i mean we'd been shot at our first firefight i think was maybe like a week and a half after we got on that post and then after that i mean it's every day like every day you're at war (laughs) you don't go home so you know it's just 24 7 and, and that just burns you out after a while i remember like the first time we got mortared i was like I couldn't even really comprehend what was happening. Like I, I knew, and now looking back on it, I can describe it. But at the moment, I was just like running through the odds in my head that they would hit us, and just grabbing my dick and balls, and just hoping like I didn't fucking lose that if we got blown up. Like dude, just like hit me in the back of the neck. I don't want to lose like an arm or a leg, in a very clinical way. And then it ended, and we kind of like you know laughed it off, and you go about your day. But then by the time I was on deployment, we weren't deployment for six months straight we were actually in iraq doing stuff and then like two and a half weeks on the back end on each way was getting to and from iraq like back to america and you know to iraq in the first place but you know you you hit month four and you kind of just stop fucking caring like it's it's life which Mm -hmm. i imagine is the way that the iraqis live now it's you know i remembered at that point a time when i wasn't always dirty when I wasn't always tired, when like every day I go out, every day I wake up, I'm like, this is it. I'm fucking dead today. I just don't want to go out like looking like a bitch or having my friends die in front of me because I fucked up. And I mean, that's like the best you can do. You control what's in your control. So, you know, like maybe some people prayed and stuff like that. But for me, I was just like, this mortar hits me. Fuck it. At this point, like, Dude, I'm sick of fucking six hours of sleep every 
worked it hit 12 hours and like these waking up in the morning waking up at noon waking up at night everyday change-ups uh and yeah we were like five months in right it was like probably right around december or something and we were getting mortared and our mortar drills were you have to go down into the basement of this four-story building that we'd taken over it's just a big concrete building and like take shelter during the mortar attack and the mortar attacks are only like 15 minutes long and we just get right in the middle of your sleep thing so like i'm sleeping and it's like six in the afternoon i've been asleep for like two hours We're like there's a mortar attack everybody get downstairs and i said fuck you <laughs> i went back to bed <laughs> and I slept through the fucking mortar attack. I got in trouble for it, too. I'm like, well, why don't you come downstairs? I'm like, dude, I fell back asleep. I'm like, we're getting mortared. It's like, I don't give a fuck. We're alive, aren't we? At least I'm a little bit well-rested. You're just so conditioned to it that you're just like, ah, whatever. Yeah, you can't care after a while. And it's not like it's a good thing. And it's not like you're fucking, like, some badass. You just get burned out on shit like that. Like... Same thing happened to me when I worked at Chipotle, dude. After I got out of the Marines, I had a temporary job at Chipotle uh, in college. The first few days, you get free Chipotle. You're like, this is the fucking best thing ever. But after a while, you don't give a shit anymore. And that, it's weird, but that's just how your brain adjusts to stuff. No matter how how good or bad it is, you can always get burned out. Mm -hmm. Unless you do something to keep it fresh, like... I could say, like, without a doubt, the best thing about going to the Marine or going on deployment three times and having all of them be basically combat deployments is that every time I brought my entire squad back, we brought each other back unharmed and alive, which is like a fucking unbelievable crapshoot, you know, uh, especially given the Iraq War. None of us, none of my guys that were in my immediate unit were hurt. I mean, a lot of guys got PTSD. My buddy Cooch, he's got a bad TBI from uh, actually from that J dam that fell down. He gets like headaches and stuff. What's TBI? Uh, traumatic brain injury. Basically, you can get concussions for being too close to uh, explosions, and you won't even know at the time. So you can get like one guy I know, Edwards. He got picked up and thrown like 30 feet by an explosion. I think he actually got thrown out of his Humvee. And they had to slap him to keep him awake until they flew him or drove him back to uh, Camp Fallujah so that, you know, he wouldn't fall asleep and die from a fucking cerebral hematoma or whatever. Uh, But you get smaller ones, too, from explosions and like little things, little bumps. I mean, they'll they'll fuck you up. You know, you get hit in the head all the time when you're in the Marines, all the time. That's why you got to wear the Kevlar. Fucking helmet saves lives. But, you know, you just walk too fast. You're like. A guy in my uh, boot camp platoon got a grade two concussion. I think they go up to grade three before you get like, it's like it just kills you. Because he was in such a rush to get on the bus that he like jumped a step and hit the overhead railing. And it left a dent in his fucking skull. <laughs> that's, that's the most marine injury I've ever heard of. Dude, the most marine injury you'll ever hear of is like a guy eating too many crayons and he has to get his stomach pumped. <laughs> so you finished these deployments and were you pretty pretty much wanting to get out of the marines just wanted to explore normal life as you could predict it would be or you know what was the reason you got out dude i mean there's so many like poetic ways to say it 
But like, honest to God, I was just sick of getting shot at and waking up at four in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I did my four years honorably. The U.S. government got three pumps out of me, which I didn't find out until I got out was weird. They do three whole deployments. I spent uh, four years. I spent 21 months or no, no, 19 months total deployed. Like, that's a lot. (laughs) That, yeah, that's, that is a lot. You know, you go in six months in, six months out, and, you know, the rotation takes its toll on you. And I was full-blown fucking alcoholic when I got out. Like, I didn't think of it like that because you don't have context when you're in the Marine grunts. Everyone drinks. I had a buddy who's, like, half of his cabinet that he kept his shit in was fucking liquor bottles. He had a full-service bar a lock away. And, you know, so all we were doing was drinking. I was smoking one, two packs of cigarettes a day. I was basically living every day like I was going to die. And, you know, it takes its toll on you. Mm-hmm. Start coughing and shit. And you start feeling a lot less young by the time you hit 22. And the grunts, <laughs> you, you can see yourself sloping down real quick if you don't keep up with yourself. But, uh, yeah, I decided it was time to get out, you know. I mean, it's 2009. You had Facebook then. Like MySpace has been around for a while and I'm just seeing all these people that I knew just living their lives and I felt like I was stuck in time, you know, just fucking I was in the Iraq war still while the Iraq war was unpopular people didn't give a shit about it anymore <laughs> they're talking about other things whatever was going on in 2009 I don't know, and you know every time you come back from deployment and really every time you go back even on leave when you're, especially in the grunts because you're so cloistered uh, it's like getting out of prison I, I talk to people that have, you know, done short, even long stints in jail, and we have the same stories. Like, yeah, man, I got out. Songs on the radio are different. People driving crazy-looking cars. Cars have weird shit inside of them. Clothes are different. All my clothes are, like, weird and somehow out of date, even though I bought them just, like, a couple years ago. People are saying different things. They're talking different ways. And, like, the longer you stay in, the harder the, the transition is. And the more crazy your life was while you're in the the harder the transition is and the transition was fucking hard for me no lie about it and one of the biggest things was you know i didn't talk about shit or when i did talk about it i didn't know how to talk about it i was a was confrontational i was drunk or drinking a lot uh and i was i had a fucking huge stick up my ass about the whole war and people not you know noticing what we were doing and stuff because you know we were doing real big shit and it was kind of like we did everything and we never got like a thank you in any way that mattered. It's not like I'm, I'm still like, you know, bugged out about it. And it's even hard to express that. But, you know, we went in and we did all this shit and it, it's like it didn't count for anything. You know, all the, the mortar fire, all the fighting, all the fucking bloodshed, every dead body of somebody that I knew that was a young man that got dragged home. Nothing was accomplished. Um, and by 2010, most of the country had been retaken by Al-Qaeda uh, after Obama pulled out. And I don't really fault him for that. It's whoever was going to be president then was probably going to pull troops out just because of such a costly endeavor. He didn't do it the best way ever. Uh, and so we ceded a lot of territory. Obviously, ISIS popped up eventually. And, you know, we keep up with the places we were. It's not like you don't know where Al-Saklaway is. CNN, Fox News, people that watch that shit, they don't know where it is either, but we always will. 
I know where that fucking bridge is. I can find it on Google Maps in five seconds because I know the shape of the terrain. I know where the, the hotel was. I know where those fields are outside. I know where fucking MSR Mobile is, Lobster, Tuna, Flounder, all the names of the goddamn <laughs> roads that we renamed because no one can pronounce the Arabic shit, so that's what you name them on the maps. Uh, I know where my abandoned amusement park that we were right next to on my second deployment was. But, you know, the, we would look it up and, you know, there's fucking ISIS flags. There's fucking Al-Qaeda flags. There's the goddamn Iraqi army not giving a shit and fucking our politicians ceding territory to Sunnis where Shias are supposed to be and ceding the Shias where Sunnis are supposed to be and treating the Kurds like shit and fucking up all the tiny things that we knew what were going on there. And we're a bunch of uneducated fucking 19-year-old jackasses with guns. <laughs> we have a better understanding of the political situation on the ground than people that are getting paid $200,000 a year by the American people to keep, you know, moving right. And so you get frustrated and you take it out on the wrong people because you're never going to run into fucking Mitch McConnell on the street and be like, dude, can you, can you fucking fix this? You know, so you get drunk at a bar and you fucking pick fights with people that don't have anything to do with anything. And that's what I did. I would get drunk. I would fight people. I went to college maybe six, seven months after I got out, and I was not ready for that. I spent most of the time drunk, angry, skipped classes. I mean, I got good grades. I ended up finishing with like a 3.5 GPA, but I was just monstrous. I bounced, and I was like a bouncer uh, for bars and clubs and stuff. And like that job was like one of my best jobs just because I got to kick the shit out of people. <laughs> and fucking a lot of it was just me you know, trying to get something out of me that was like a worm in my head that would, I would blame for all my bad decisions because it hurts so bad to be in there. And, uh, I guess that kind of goes up to where I am now. Uh, even after I got out of college, still drinking a lot, although I kind of started to understand, you know, I started going to the VA, which is a big thing to sound lot, but you know, at one point, I was like, I think I need some fucking help because I wake up every day miserable. I had a really bad downtime where, you know, I was thinking about hurting myself and stuff. And I went to the VA and I actually got some like psychological treatment. They're like, yeah, dude, you are fucked up. Like, you don't have to be <laughs> you don't have to think that you're a huge pussy because you have all these problems. These are common problems. You have PTSD. That's life, man. That's your life now. It's a problem you have, but you can fix it. This is what you can do. And I didn't take all the advice because I'm a stubborn, prideful, former combat vet marine dumbass. And uh, I kept going and kept going. And then I started getting into writing, which is the thing I've always loved to do. So I was actually a reporter after college and in college. So I got my degree in was journalism. I, uh, I got a degree in journalism from the University of Cincinnati. I went to school in my hometown because after four years of being in the Marines, I didn't want to be away from my mom again so far that she couldn't see me. It would have driven her insane. She's like, oh, he's finally home. And he leaves six months again. <laughs> and now he's oh, fucking going to UCLA, Berkeley or whatever. I could have gone anywhere. I'm actually really good at writing. Even as far as standardized, te- standardized tests are concerned, my English scores are in the 99th percentile. Like, every time so i was like yeah i guess i'll go to school i'll do some writing shit everybody thinks i'm good at that uh i guess because i am a writer i don't think i'm good at it (laughs) always trying to get better but uh 
Yeah, so I got a degree in journalism because I didn't know what else to do with myself. I was going to try to be a lawyer, but I talked to actual lawyers, and they're all fucking absolutely miserable. <laughs> Some of the most unhappy people I've ever met in my life are lawyers. So I was like, yeah, I don't really want to do that. I'll try journalism. And so, uh, yeah, I graduated, and I moved to Williston North, Dakota, Williston, North Dakota, which is the saddest town in America, I think, if there are sadder towns like Jesus Christ leave. Uh, and I covered the oil boom up there, a bunch of roughnecks and uh, fracking and all that. So why did you move there? There was a job. Uh, that's the nature of the journalism industry is that it's disintegrating from the inside out because it's badly run by old people who don't know what the fuck journalism is anymore. Uh, and so you just take the first job that's available because there's so few. There's only like, I don't know, 20,000 journalists left in America or something like that. And so I went to Williston and I got a job there for the Williston Herald covering the oil boom. And while I was there, I started to write again and I'd actually never stopped writing now that I, when I think back on it, even was I was on my first and second deployments in the Marines, I would try to open the word processor on the uh, laptop I brought with me overseas and I'd type little short stories out and shit and get little things started. But they are always, this is going to sound weird, dishonest. I was like writing stories that I thought people would like to hear, uh, which and I wasn't writing stories that I wanted to write. And I didn't even know that at the time because it's not even a, my brain wasn't in the right headspace for that. Were they like stories of your experiences or like fictional stories that like what uh, kind of fictional stuff? Mostly. Yeah. I try to keep a journal about a million times as far as the nonfiction goes, but I, I hate journaling. <laughs> so you, so you, you, you were writing fictional short stories, but you were kind of tailoring them to what you thought people would like instead of just writing what you know. Uh, yeah, it was basically like I wasn't writing about my experiences or I wasn't letting my experiences and my own voice color my writing, which I do now. And it makes sense. Like when I read stuff I write now, that's mine. And I can tell that it's mine because it, it, it just is. I don't know if you if you do enough writing or if you write in a way that that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, I can't really explain it anymore. But it, it's very much a way where you can see your own hand print on the things that you make. Uh, and that's the situation I like. You know, I'm in now. I, I, I like to write, but I kind of got back into it in Williston while I was drinking, and I wrote. Uh, I started writing a story, a novel actually called Black Blood the Prairie. Uh, which I finished and I haven't sold because it's hard to sell novels, but uh, I didn't finish it then. I kind of just shelved it after I wrote six chapters and I was just a drunk, incoherent mess. Most of the time I was up there, I was embarrassing myself, almost got a DUI once or twice. I fucking really glad I had stopped fighting because I would probably been in jail by when I was up there. And I, I was still doing a lot of the same things I was doing in college and in the Marines. And I was like, what am I doing with myself? Like by now, you know, I'm, I'm 26 years old. Like I need to, I need to cut this shit out. And so I got a job, the first job I could take in any newspaper at all to get the fuck out of North Dakota was at the, the Charleston Daily Mail in Charleston, West Virginia, which I was like, I guess it's going to be some hick shit because it's West Virginia. And I was absolutely wrong. Like 
the paper's not that good of a paper, and it was actually it's shut down now. Like it wasn't a bad paper; it was just dying, like most newspapers are. And it died while I was there. I only worked there for seven months before it shut down completely. And that's like was the beginning of the end of my time as a journalist. But while I was there, I met my current girlfriend, Sam, who like, you know, we kind of started to connect. And I was like, you know, I, I write stuff on occasion. And she's like, what, like fiction? And I'm like, yeah. And I showed it to her. And she's like, this is one of the best things I've ever read. Like, you should do this. Like you're good at journalism, but this means something. And like I can tell you, like yeah, Black Weather Prayers is like the first thing I started writing in a long time, where I was like, this like I put myself into it. It was about the same kind of dark, isolated feelings I had living out in the frozen fucking tundra that is Williston. And it was a story about being isolated and, you know, people being apart from each other and how that kind of rots you a little bit on the outside every day when you don't have human connection and how things can kind of take advantage of that to fuck people up. Is it like Sorry. a drama or kind of like a dark story? Uh, yeah, very dark story. Um, let's see. How do you even how to even describe it? Like a horror? Basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, horror thriller. Everything I write is horror and dark fiction, macabre type stuff. Think uh, closer to Poe, like between Edgar Allan Poe and Stephen King is where you kind of find me. So you wrote this novel when you were living in Charleston? I started writing it in Williston, North Dakota in 2014, and I finished it in Newport News, Virginia in 2015 because I actually moved a bunch of times. It took me about a year and a half to write it. And since I finished that, like, uh, I love the novel and I love the story that I wrote, but the big thing from that is that it gave me the courage to write at all. And since I finished that novel, I have started writing something like, I think I did the math, and I read about 250 to 500,000 words per year. And uh, I've actually written four other novels <laughs> since then because I just never stopped now because I'm like, oh, well, you know, I might be able to sell them. I might be, I might not be able to, but like I can't stop writing because once I opened that shell, so to say, I, uh, I found something valuable in it. And it's like one of the only things that makes me happy. And now that I, now that I write and stuff, I mean like kind of the culmination to my story is once I found that I don't need to be, the fucking drunken reprobate asshole I'd been for years after I got out of the Marine Corps. And it was like uh, almost chemical change in my whole body. You know, I, I was relaxed and like, I can go back to that whenever I still have problems, you know, the PTSD doesn't go away. Uh, and I have nightmares like you wouldn't fucking believe. I actually have to take medicine for them, but I can turn some of those into stories. And I have, uh, if anybody wants to listen to The Water Rotted Doll, which is episodes 203 and 204 on my West Side Fairy Tales podcast for this season, uh, that story is directly influenced by a dream I had about uh, being on an underwater reclamation crew and having a eyeless plaster doll chase me around and then slowly eat me until I woke up. Uh, yeah, that's fucked up. Yeah, it's super fucked up. <laughs> the best part about this having PTSD is being able to go in and talk to these like kind of basically every shrink at the VA 
is usually a new person because that's how the VA gets like they use their budget is like you can go in and get a bunch of like good residencies and stuff as a new psychiatrist if you help vets and so they get cheap labor and some of it's actually really good labor because you get all these these you know pupils from these schools and like you're a lot of the times you're these kid these people's like first actual connection with a case of somebody who's seen some really horrific shit and is going to talk about it in a very cavalier direct manner and i'll have moments where like people put down a pen and to me it's some shit that like you know it happened to me on a tuesday or you know like with the nightmares it happens to me so much that it's not like something i'm going to start crying about i'm like yeah so i have a nightmare where uh i fucking walk out of my house and there's a worm in the ground that comes up and eats my feet and i bleed to death and that's the dream <laughs> which is actually a dream i had and i told a shrink about this when i was in cincinnati and she she gently set her pen down while she was taking notes and she's like do you want to do talk therapy too it's like i don't know <laughs> don't react like that to me i'm very sensitive right now <laughs> telling you some real personal stuff you're gonna, you're gonna break my heart kid so so where was the uh i'm trying to connect the dots to current times from when you finish this novel where where does how do we connect those dots gotcha so i mean it's another whole thing uh so we moved to Newport News from Charleston because my girlfriend, we decided we'd only been dating for three months and we liked enough each other enough to decide like uh, when our paper shut down because we both got laid off at the exact same time. I was like, I came all the way to Charleston, West Virginia, and you are by far the best thing that's happened to me since I got here. Like, I, I fucking love you. And she's like, I love you, too. Let's let's try to make this work instead of going our separate ways and getting jobs at other places. So basically the first one of us to get a job, which was her, we'd go there. And she got a job in Newport News, Virginia, which is if I could say there's one place in the world I want wiped off the face of America, it's that city. <laughs> this is going to sound mean. But man, oh man, Newport News, Virginia is like one of the worst places on earth. Uh, you probably only even barely heard about it because it's got the stupid name, Newport News. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is traditional Virginia Old South to the point where like – you know how you hear about racism as a kid? I said, You're from Michigan, right? Right. Like you hear about like that old southern racism and people like racism still alive in the south – and you're like, yeah, maybe they're just over-exaggerating. And then you get somewhere like Newport News, and you're like, oh, no, it's real here. <laughs> All, it's... Every person that's poor is black, and every person that's really, really rich is white, and they don't live in the same fucking neighborhoods. And uh, I did – I worked for a friend of Sam's who happened to live in the area, and I would put aftermarket parts in vans, like uh, cabinetry and stuff. It's real back-breaking work. I worked for like $12 an hour. And I would basically I would go to work every day, which is like a 12 hour day because it was like an hour and a half across the bridge, eight to nine to 10 hours over there. And then another hour and a half back across the bridge. And I would get home and I'd crack a beer and I'd write. And I just do that every day. And I cranked out another novel on accident. <laughs> uh, my grandma died during that time. It was like uh, my grandma on my dad's side it was real close to everybody. That put a bee in my ass. And I wrote a, uh, another novel called blood meal we still in newport no so we lived in newport news for about a year i actually ended up getting a job where sam worked 
And I did not fit in there because they basically just wanted a schlub to just do whatever they told kind of thing. And it's the journalism industry is weird. It's run a lot of the times by people that don't know how to connect with people today. They don't know how the internet works. Mm. Like you have not had your mind blown until you've had like a 65 year old man try to explain Twitter to you. And he got his account three days ago at a conference. So, like, okay, so this is what a hashtag does. It's going to allow you to create a topic that other people can find on Twitter. It's like, yeah, dude, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was in college like two years ago. I, I wasn't even using this for business at the point, but like I have more followers than you and I, I know how this thing works. And, but basically like I just didn't fit in and I, I was kind of already falling out of love with journalism at the time. Anyway, I got into it because I wanted to write and I thought of journalism in a very bright eyed, bushy tailed way where it was like, we're going to go out and we're going to tell people stories, but it's not really like that when you get into it. Maybe it is if you work at like the fucking New York times or some high end paper, but even then I'm, I'm probably just trying to believe in a dream. What you really end up doing a lot of times is you cover your beat and you just write shit all the time that no one gives a fuck about there's going to be like 10 people that understand your story and then there's going to be 10 more people that don't understand it and get on facebook to call you a communist or a fascist and like they will say both of those things about you like i don't know i can only go one way i can either be left or right but i can't be left and right you crazy people <laughs> and you know i fell out i was falling out in love with it and i was i had a terrible work relationship with my immediate boss who's an editor uh i won't use his name but he was a dickhead and he's working me crazy hours i don't think he liked me because i'm taller than he was <laughs> i can't really think of anything else he's just real mad i was tall and i was dating sam who worked there she's like the prettiest girl in the office so maybe two ways of jealousy and uh i ended up getting fired over some made-up shit they tried to say i plagiarized a story and I make shit up for a living. Like, that's what I like to do. Like, I would have made stuff up before I ever stole it. It's like the blackest thing you can ever say about me. Mm -hmm. And we looked it up, and, like, I didn't plagiarize it. He just scuffed some shit around to make it look like I did, and they fired me the same day, or actually two days later. And so I was out of that job, and Sam was so pissed about it that she quit out of protest. And she got a job in Louisville, and I fell into a black depression. And, uh, well, that happened. I wrote another story called West by God. Uh, yeah, but I wrote that while I was like, I think I wrote that in about a month and a half while I was unemployed, uh, on just getting ready to move from Newport news to Virginia. And then we moved or moved from Newport news to Louisville where I live now. And then we moved here. I got a job as a night security guard because I just didn't want to do journalism anymore. And Sam's like, you should just do something to get your work out. And I said, okay, uh, small order. So, you know, I, I started trying to sell novels and stuff. And I was working midnights in a warehouse that is basically I was alone in a warehouse the size of like four football fields put together. And it was just dark, and I would work there from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. on the fucking the bleed eye, the, the not the bleeding eye, the red eye shift. 
and the place is like haunted. I swear to God. And so I just sit there, terrified, in this tiny little office, which is the only lit place, watching these grainy security feeds and writing horror stories. And I uh, decided to start a podcast just to build some reputation for myself, so that if I started selling novels, or at least trying to sell novels, I could say like, "Hey, look, I already have a small viewership." listenership on this podcast and i can get people interested in my work which is a huge thing and these people are strangers to me they're not my family they're trying to make me feel good they're fucking nobodies from the internet that are coming up to me and telling me like hey your shit's all right and it was a massive failure at first (laughs) i had uh maybe five listens for the first six episodes seriously which took me from when i started it at the beginning of november i think it was of 2016 yeah so it was it was just after the election so trump won and everyone's like this is crazy and i was like i'm gonna start a podcast and so i did and my first episode was on a story about a woman who goes to a park and she finds a big black rock there at the edge of a mountain while she's alone and she keeps feeling like she wants to jump off the edge and she's imagining herself jumping off the edge. And then she finds out that she can't leave and that she might, the only thing she might be able to do is just jump or just imagine herself jumping off and dying like for the rest of eternity. And that sort of depressing jump in was kind of my jump into the podcast. And now we've actually started growing. I'm on my second season and, uh, I've got, something like a thousand subscribers, maybe more. I don't really know how the metrics work or how to read them. You know, it, it's cool. Like I have a community of people that respect me as an artist. This is not like, you know, they're all built around me. We're collaborators and there's a lot of people I'm fans of, but they know my name and it's, it's just, you grow a little bit, a little bit each time. And I came up to that from like, you know, basically wanting to put a fucking bullet in my head back in 2012. Cause I was just drunk and miserable all the time to, six years later and it's this um i'm actually doing something i love and i talk very freely about things that have made me miserable and i think that's made all the difference in my life yeah that's awesome so after everything you've gone through and all the experiences and the ups and the downs and trying to find your true career path that you really want your you know you've you've made it not up to your standards but you there's a light at the end of the tunnel you have your path and you're you're on your way to fulfilling it yeah um i'm i'm in a place where i can grow as a person into a person i would like to be even more than the man i already am uh it's good to wake up every day after a long time a long time of just hating yourself and just trying to like hurt yourself every day with your decisions to, to get into a place where you're like, I, I feel like a, a person I feel like a person that matters. And like, I have a positive effect on the people around me. And it was hard. You know, there's a lot of times where it doesn't even seem like you're getting up and you're doing work, but you do, you get up and you just try to be a better person. Even if it's just, I'm going to go to the gym today. I'm going to write 2000 words today. Uh, I'm not going to drink more than six beers this weekend um i'm gonna let this argument slide like every single one of those things is a fucking brick in that house you can build for yourself and if there's anything that me talking about my life would give to anybody it's like dude you can build that house for yourself just 
make the first brick and drop it in the dirt and then just find another one and drop it on top of that. Come back later and edit. <laughs> the writer's creed. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work at first, just do the work, come back and fix it in, t- in post. I think that about sums it up. Um, where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Do you have any last message that you want to send out to people? Lay it all out there. Final go. No, um, yeah. If you if you like what I was talking about and you want to know more about me, uh, just go ahead and go to the Westside or WestsideFairyTales.com. My podcast is called The Westside Fairy Tales. It's a once a month horror anthology podcast, dark fiction, horror stories, mostly macabre stuff. It releases on the first Friday of every month, and you can get a hold of me at WestsideFairyTales at gmail.com at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter and we're on Instagram and Facebook uh, at Westside Fairy Tales. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Our Unique Life. Uh, make sure you check us out at Twitter at Our Unique Life, all separated by underscores. And make sure you go check out Tyler's stuff. He's got a really great podcast and a really great story. And I hope you tune in next week and let me know if you have any suggestions. Thank you. Marines are dumb as fuck. I love them, but some of the stupidest human beings I've ever met in my life are Marines. Some of the smartest, too. There's some guys that were in my infantry unit that went to fucking MIT and dropped out to join the Marine Corps infantry for whatever reason. But, man, there was one guy who was a sergeant, and we had to convince him that dinosaurs were real. And I'm not even kidding. That's a real <laughs> conversation I had in our Ramadi, Iraq. At the height of the fucking Iraq war, hey, uh, dummy, fucking dinosaurs are real. You got no proof for this. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, that is real. <laughs>